0: Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. The opioid epidemic is the deadliest drug crisis in American history, claiming over 350,000 lives since 1999. So how did a tragedy that began when Bill Clinton was president and surged through the years George W. Bush occupied the White House, only begin to get attention when Barack Obama was wrapping up his second term in office. How was the greatest drug epidemic in American history allowed to go virtually unchecked for nearly two decades, with still no end in sight? Today we'll talk with award-winning author of American Overdose, Chris McGreal, to get answers to these and many more questions about the origins of the opioid epidemic and the negligent policies that allowed Big Pharma to profit from the suffering of patients and new evidence on the FDA's complicity in helping to drive the mass overprescribing of opioids. So, Chris, welcome. Thank you. Okay. Now, 20 years into the opioid epidemic, I think the general public has a pretty good feel for what happened but not why and how it happened. Your book tells these in three acts, dealing, hooked, and withdrawal. What brought you to this project, and how did you decide to approach telling this story in three acts?
2: I was reporting uh, on poverty and marginalization uh, from communities that um, were in bits of America that often don't get Much focus uh, from the press. And um, I was traveling between uh, four of the poorest towns in America, and one of them was in eastern Kentucky, a place called Beattyville. And what struck me uh, spending time there was how uh, much the story of uh, its present day condition was dominated by the story of the opioid epidemic. And it's in the nature of reporting, for, particularly for newspapers, that, you know, these big questions as as you carry on uh, for, uh, reporting the story from place to place emerge in your mind. And I think the two big questions that emerged that I wanted to answer in the book were, um, I was hearing from people who became hooked on these drugs in the 1990s. And I was thinking, how is it that uh this can go on for 20 years but really there's only the public discussion about it now um it's a it's a uh, an epidemic that began under bill clinton and yet we only uh, had a president that talked about it when barack obama addressed it in his last year in the white house um and uh Out of that also came another observation, perhaps because I have – I'm both American and British, so I have one foot uh, abroad. And what I also realized is this was a uniquely American – um, phenomenon um, you do not have this crisis in in the US, uh, in the UK or in most of Europe in other developed countries and I wonder what is it what's happening in America is this a societal thing is this is this about the system what is it that's happening in the United States that they have this terrible epidemic the worst drug epidemic in its history in the country's history um, and yet we're not really seeing it anywhere else and those are the two questions I set out to write uh, to address in the book really Either get under the skin of um, through visiting these communities writing about them but also wandering the corridors of power in Washington discovering who was making the decisions uh, that led to this epidemic Um, and the reason I structured the book as I did was um, because it became um, apparent to me that there were these different phases to the story that you have the launch of of, uh, the mass prescribing of opioids which uh, on one hand was done with good intent by doctors who really thought it was the right thing, but also by a malign uh, drug company to throw an opportunity to make money. And then you, you see a second phase where people begin to realize there's a problem during that time it, it is like a pivotal moment in the early 2000s when actually the epidemic could have been uh, prevented when prescribing could have been reined in and faced w- uh with the choice at that moment the country went the other way and actually ramped up prescribing uh for reasons that we can discuss um and that's really when you see uh, the mass addiction that that's the kind of section that deals with being hooked and then finally the the country wakes up and 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 the authorities begin to deal with this um, uh, after this kind of lost decade, really. Uh, and that's the thir- the kind of third and final act, which is right. Everybody's talking about this now. But actually, it's almost too late to the extent that so many people are addicted and you see the rise of alternative uh, uh, drugs. Uh, to uh, to prescription opioids such as heroin and more latterly, uh fentanyl and now they're not just dealing with a prescription drug crisis they're actually dealing with a, a full-blown uh, opioid epidemic
1: So, much of this is traced back to the origins of OxyContin and its approval in 1995. And you had a medical leader that kind of uh, brought it across the finish line and, and let the approval happen for the FDA without clinical trials. And in reading your book, it just seems as though that's just so implausible that that could happen. So walk us through how that possibly could have happened.
2: Well, what you see uh, in 1995 is that Purdue Pharma submits this drug, OxyContin, which is a very powerful opioid, many times more powerful than those prescription opioids that are generally available for people treating things like chronic pain. Um, And they go to the FDA and they say, look, we've come up with this very effective drug. It's different to the earlier ones because it's more powerful, but it's also safer. And they made this argument that it was safer because it had this special mechanism which allowed a uh, the drug to be um, essentially dripped into a person's system over a period of time. So it's a very powerful drug, but it would slowly release um, the narcotic into a person's system uh, and fight the pain and that was going to be more effective because it lasted longer they didn't have to keep taking pills but it was also going to be safer um, because uh what it meant was that when you take a narcotic pill uh, an opioid painkiller you get an instant uh boost from it uh and then it is effectiveness slowly drops off now if you're taking um say them four times a day every three hours you get that hit Uh, every every three or four hours and that's uh, that's what increases the risk of addiction they were saying that with these pills which you take only um which should last for 12 hours then you uh only need to take them twice a day so you only get that hit twice a day that reduces the risk of addiction the FDA essentially signed on from this, even though it was entirely a theoretical claim and there were there was no uh, no backup, no science. It essentially goes out there with, with actually no proof for the claims that are being made. And in time, it will be quite clear, and Purdue Pharma will know that these claims are untrue.
1: Within a year
2: of approving
1: OxyContin, Dr. Curtis Wright, the medical director for the FDA, was working for the pharmaceutical industry and... By 1998, he was the executive vice president of risk management and executive director of medical affairs for Purdue Pharma, the makers of OxyContin.
2: But you see something else as well, which is that that's just the start of it. It, it, it wasn't a one-off. It, you see a pattern of this follow over the next 20 years as more and more drugs come onto the market. But more importantly, as the epidemic uh, uh, balloons, uh, at various points, when the FDA could have reined in um, the mass prescribing of drugs, it, perhaps uh, one of its uh, options was to actually restrict uh, who they could be prescribed to. They allowed OxyContin for uh, moderate to severe pain. Now, moderate pain really is pretty much anybody that has uh, goes to the doctor with pain. If they had restricted it to severe pain very early on, that, that drug would have only gone to people, really, who were perhaps dying of cancer or immediately after a very severe operation. Um, and that, what you see in ninety five ninety six sets the pattern for the next 20 years. What was flawed
1: in the FDA's approval process here when it came to opioids and Purdue Pharma in particular, maybe?
2: Well, I think uh, really it's a product of what's flawed in the way the system works. And and in the mid '90s, you'd you'd actually just a few years earlier, you'd seen a, a, a quite significant shift in the way that the FDA was funded, and that shifted its relationship with the drug industry. Uh, the, uh, it was really a legacy of the 1980s and the Reagan administration. But in 1992, under Bill Clinton, the Congress passed a law which essentially said the drug companies had to pay for the costs of licensing their drugs. And um, on, on paper, that makes perfect sense. You know, it's their drugs that are being licensed. Why wouldn't they pay the costs of approving them? But there were warnings from people in the FDA at the time that it would give Uh, the drug company's financial influence over the fda and that's indeed what happened they the so-called user fees over the years uh got larger and larger to the point now that the uh, division of the fda that approves opioids gets 70 percent of its money from the drug makers Um, so you can see that this relationship builds up now the fda insists there's no influence but that's really hard to believe and FDA officials will say, of course there's influence uh, because you know who's, who's paying your way.
1: From 2000 until 2004, Dr. Nathaniel Katz served as the chairman of the advisory committee on the anesthesia, critical care, and addiction products division for the FDA. I asked him if the fact that 70 percent of their funding comes from industry could affect the FDA's decisions. Here's what he had to say.
0: Well, it certainly creates that a question, and it creates that appearance in many people's minds. And sure, if the government would actually give the FDA the funding that it needed to do its job, then we didn't—they didn't need to rely on industry funding to review drugs in a timely manner. That would be better. Uh, you know, I—who I, uh, would say that that wouldn't be better? Um, having said, and again, I'm not an expert on what goes on in every corner of the FDA. My only experience is limited to just uh, the pain division and. I can, you know, I can tell you that in my experience, the fact that they're they're getting paid by industry, you wouldn't you wouldn't think that that has no influence whatsoever, as far as I can see in the
2: actual running of the uh, pain division. Because of the nature of the way uh, politics and lobbying works in this country, not only do you have that, you have at the same time this incredible increase in money that the pharmaceutical industry is spending on uh, lobbying. So, just in the past decade alone, it spent two and a half billion dollars on lobbying Congress, uh, either directly through uh, campaign contributions or through uh, lobbyists, um, uh, companies, uh, or through third. Uh, entities which are really front organizations, like the U.S. Pain Foundation for the industry, they spend this massive amount of money to influence Congress, and Congress then in turn uh, has influence over the FDA. It pressures the FDA, asks questions, and and what you see through the 90s is this increasing financial influence, but also the pressure to speed up drug approval, and that fed in uh, to the FDA's approval of this drug. But there was another factor as well, which was the conversation in the medical profession had changed quite dramatically at that point too because there was this group of doctors which were pushing the idea that opioids were really a magic bullet the problem with that was that actually the science wasn't there for it and they distorted the science in some cases and made uh, completely inflated claims about safety and effectiveness for these drugs so you had these two things come together Um, And that's that's how OxyContin lands on the market.
1: So I want to dig a little bit deeper into the FDA's approval process and perhaps some of the people that were kind of leading the way uh, when we, uh, I'll call it, went astray with some of these approvals. The FDA's standard for approving new drugs was whether they're safe and effective when used as prescribed. So they're not looking at other things, they're looking at if you use it as prescribed, whether or not it's safe. And under the leadership of Bob Rapoport, the division was locked into a view that the real epidemic was untreated pain. So how did that impact the approval of, I want to look at one of the most powerful hydrocodone pills, and that's Zohydro ER?
2: Yes. Well, the approval of Zohydro, uh, in a way, proved to be a political turning point, um, and that comes along in 2012. And by then it's clear there's an epidemic. Tom Frieden, the head of the CDC, has stood up uh, a year earlier and said it's an epidemic. There's no doubt now the, the, about the scale of deaths. And there's no doubt either about the connection between mass prescribing and deaths. They rely, they rise in parallel until actually 2012, the years of hydro uh, came to the fore. You see... Um, you You see two hundred and fifty five million prescriptions for opioids written in this country that's That's enough to supply thirty days to every uh, adult American, um, which is a massive amount of pills to be out there and If you look at the prescribing rates and compare them to Europe, that's five or six times the rate of Europe and fifty times the rate of Japan. So you can see the scale of the problem so on or out along comes this drug uh, zohydro, and Zohydro proves to be very interesting because it's essentially like OxyContin there's really not much difference and um, it comes up before um, the FDA has these committees made up of scientists and doctors that make recommendations on whether a drug should be approved uh, for general sale and the FDA isn't obliged to listen to them but it is obliged to hold them so it does and so hydro comes up in this, uh, in this atmosphere that we're talking about, um, in which it's quite clear that there is an epidemic. And the FDA essentially takes the very firm view that the broader epidemic, the broader public health uh, crisis is, is not to be considered. This, it's very, very much this narrow definition that you've just talked about of whether the drug is safe. Uh, and effective as prescribed now the first thing is that by then it was pretty clear that these drugs probably weren't safe and effective as prescribed uh, but we still didn't have the clinical trials uh, to show it we certainly had plenty of doctors who were saying that and we had plenty of circumstantial evidence so just on its own there was a question within the fda's definition but much more broadly there was a um there was much more concern within the medical profession about uh, this wider issue of addiction about drugs that were so many were being prescribed. They were swilling around the country. Uh, Many of them were on the black market. They were feeding the epidemic and the doctors on the panel were asking the question, do we really need another drug like Oxycontin uh, on the market? And, Along comes uh, Bob Rappaport, who's essentially head of the Opioid Approval Division for the FDA, and he says that to the doctors, that isn't the question you should be considering. The question you need to consider is whether this drug is any worse than OxyContin. And the doctors were incredulous, uh, and they were saying, well, we, we know there's this huge problem with OxyContin, and on top of that, actually, OxyContin had been changed in 2010, to give it a new formula to make it uh, more safe. Um, But it was being compared to the original uh, OxyContin because that drug had never been ruled illegal or taken off the market. And doctors are completely incredulous. But Rappaport presses them and says, no, you have to consider uh, whether it's um, any worse than OxyContin because, and these are the words he used, there has to be a level playing field for business. And the doctors and scientists on the panel clearly saw that as saying the right of the drug companies to make money was more important than the public health issues.
1: He sided with business. He over, overrode them and sided with business.
2: He essentially said that exactly that. He sided with business. And they were they were incredulous. And they raised all kinds of objections. And they said, of course, their business needs the right to make money, but not at the expense of lives. Um, and there was a lot of pushback from them. And the doctors voted overwhelmingly 11 to 2 uh, to reject this drug and said they even had another, a second vote which said it wasn't even safe um, for what it was going to be used for. Uh, but they, the bigger vote was 11 to 2 to say that this shouldn't be on the market because of public health concerns.
1: Congressman Hal Rogers from Kentucky was one of the earliest congressmen to sound alarm bells over the opioid epidemic. I found this YouTube of him questioning the head of the FDA, Dr. Margaret Hamburg, just after the FDA decided to override their advisory board's recommendation and did the unthinkable. They approved Zohydro ER.
3: Boy, when Oxycontin was at its height... I was going to emergency rooms all the time in my district and seeing young people die from overdoses, not knowing many cases that it was so powerful and addictive. And most of it's coming from medicine cabinets in people's homes that kids get into. And Zohydro, I'm afraid, will be the same way. So I'm I'm really alarmed, especially since the company that makes it uh, says that it'll be ready to release an abuse deterrent pill in just two years. They're, they're in the process of making that pill non-crushable, and it'll be available shortly. But in the meantime now, you're putting this pill on the market that I'm really scared of. It's not a question, it's more a statement.
1: Well, I, I appreciate your concerns. We want to continue to monitor this drug and other opiate drugs in terms of appropriate use is a critical area in terms of FDA activities, whether it's in moving towards trying to, to better develop the abuse deterrent technologies, which really, I mean, the crushable, as you know, does not stop um, the determined abuser. and, and we are not where we need to be in terms of that formulation. Your, your
3: advisory council voted 13...
1: 11, 11 to 11 2. 11
3: to 2. Thank you. Voted 11 to 2 to not approve Zohydro. Uh The medical community is having very strong reservations about uh, introducing this drug. Uh, the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, <laughs> endorsed uh, the bill that I introduced along with uh, Congressman Lynch to ban Sohydro. So, Hydro. so uh, you're swimming upstream here in a in a very dangerous current, I think.
2: That vote went through. Uh, everybody thought Sohydro wasn't going to make it onto the market. And then a few months later, the Food and Drug Administration just announced it would ignore the committee's ruling and it approved the drug and it was put on the market.
1: So, can you give us a little bit of insight on how that could possibly happen?
2: Although Bob Rathport was uh, the most senior FDA official on the committee, he didn't have the final say that the decision on whether hydro would be approved against the committee's recommendations went all the way to the top to the commissioner of the FDA, Dr. Margaret Hamburg. And I've spoken to her about this. But she does admit that the political backlash was huge, that there were questions in Congress, there was, um, there was an, a, an outrage within parts of the medical profession. And, um, for instance, uh, Mary Bono, who was a congresswoman at the time, a Republican whose own son had become uh, addicted to opioids, said to me, you know, we looked at them and wondered what planet they were living on. She couldn't believe that they wouldn't even consider the fact that there were thousands of Americans dying every year from these drugs. Um, and by that point, there must have been quarter of a million dead uh, Americans who died from uh, opioid overdoses. So it was, the scale of the epidemic was clear. And I think um, um, Margaret Hamburg, uh, in, when I was talking to her, she essentially conceded that the FDA had far too narrow a view, that it hadn't taken on board public health concerns, but also that it had been out of touch. That it would taken this this kind of uh, very um, elitist really uh view of the epidemic and that essentially it had bought into this narrative that had uh, was very strongly pushed by the drug companies that if people could, became addicted it was their own fault it was to blame the victims and they they separated out those people who became addicted and died from those people who they described as the innocent pain patient who needed these drugs. Now, the fact is that very often they were one and the same person. The CDC's own figures show that 70% of people who uh, use heroin came to it through prescription pills. So there there was no doubt about the link. Um, But the FDA, I think, had, had taken a very narrow view of just looking at whether these drugs would work for the patients to whom they were prescribed.
1: The story that you wrote about in 2003, Endo sought FDA approval for Opana, a high strength drug more potent than OxyContin, and the FDA rejected it after many patients overdosed. They overdosed during trials. Three years later, the FDA embraced what they called enriched enrollment, and the drug maker presented the new data to the FDA and it was approved. How is that possible, Chris?
2: Well, that's a long and winding path. Um, I mean, as, uh, in, in its short version, the, um, the FDA uh, allowed, through enriched enrollment, allowed uh, Endo to submit the same drug. There was no change to the drug whatsoever. But the studies changed. and the, what they did in the studies was they just took anybody out of the study who was at risk of addiction. Uh, they were allowed to do that that 's what enriched enrollment is that 's what that process is. How we got to that point is uh, a revealing story, which is that there, there were a um, a couple of doctors uh, sorry there were a couple of uh, academics who had seen that drug companies were very frustrated uh, at the slow, what they regarded as the slow process for approving opioids when they realised it was a huge market there and they wanted to get more on, or, uh, out there sell more drugs uh, and so they got together uh, a conference and the, essentially they uh, persuaded the FDA uh, and those uh, officials who, who were responsible for uh, the drawing up uh, opioid approval process They got them to agree to come And then they told the drug companies Look, the FDA officials are going to be there Don't you want to pay thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a time To sit at the same table as them Which smacks of uh, corruption At the very least, I think But certainly uh, you have to wonder about How that process could happen um, And so the drug companies go Oh yes, please And they pay to come and sit at the table And this is such a success That uh, for the academics included, that um, they start doing this every year. And what emerges from those talks over the years is this process, amongst other things, of enriched enrollment. So,
1: in essence, what they're doing, though, is re-engineering the FDA's approval process for these drugs, weren't they?
2: That is what they were doing. But I've spoken to um, scientists and uh, doctors who were invited to be part of that process, and they said, From the beginning, it smacked of the drug companies basically trying to influence that process in a way that they didn't feel was appropriate, and that should have been more open. Uh, These should have been public meetings, uh, and certainly, at the very least, the drug companies should not have been paying money to be there.
1: This concludes our first episode with best-selling author Chris McGreal on his compelling book, American Overdose a forensic dive into the politics and policies that help create the worst health crisis in American history. Please join us next time for part two of our three-part series on American overdose, where we'll talk about how, as the opioid epidemic emerged, the FDA approved a powerful opioid it had previously rejected only to have the manufacturer voluntarily remove it from the market but not until it was too late for thousands who overdosed. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover Two PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover Two Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit Cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.